Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of our current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mamina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show. To, I mean, we, we're only just, I suppose, getting to a point where we, we have assurances of our own broadcast. A new legislation will keep community television on air until further notice. Amid a growing Indian diaspora in Australia, elderly migrants now face unique challenges of loneliness. And later today. Well, we're focused on keeping the New South Wales government accountable. A New South Wales Aboriginal organisation seeks Indigenous input for closing the gap targets. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. A new legislation introduced by Minister Michelle Rowland secures the future of community television in Australia, ensuring Channel 44 in Adelaide and Channel 31 in Melbourne stay on air indefinitely. The long-awaited bill retracts old laws, allowing the stations to broadcast until a new use for the field is found. I speak with Shane Dunlop, General Manager of Channel 31 in Melbourne, about community television's importance in showcasing diverse voices and nurturing talent. Why is the new legislation to securing air time for community television so important? Well, it represents really, I think, efforts to restore or correct the damage of the last 10 years of public policy with regards to community television. I mean, it, it, it a positive step to provide some assurance and some um, level of stability with regards to a you know broadcast spectrum, basically, in stark contrast to, uh, I suppose, the short-term extensions and um, you know kicking the can down the line, basically, that occurred uh, in, in previous years. So this really marks a first step in uh, correcting the mistakes of the past. In what ways do you see community television expanding in the future? I certainly have some perspectives on how that might uh, take place. It's incredibly uh, complex um, to, I mean, we, we're only just, I suppose, getting to a point where we, we have assurances of our own broadcast in Melbourne and Adelaide being protected for some time to come. And depending on who you ask, that period of time before the spectrum we currently occupy is needed for alternative uses could, could well be, you know, five to ten years um, or, or never, potentially. Um, so, you know, the, the legislation that is being proposed certainly makes a huge impact for our two stations in our two uh, local areas. So just coming off the back of, of receiving that, it's very hard to then shift your view to how expansion might take place or how um, community TV can best serve all of Australia um, like it once did. Um, that doesn't mean we don't have a particular point of view how that might take place. That doesn't mean that we aren't talking to uh, the relevant um, political and departmental uh, contacts around how uh, an expansion might be handled. And it's also, I think, true that we have been spending a lot of time looking at what we're doing, particularly in uh, the digital space. Uh, and in, in the absence of a terrestrial expansion, um, if that's not possible, and again, 
we would like to see that being a possibility. Uh, the digital space through CTV Plus and how we're leveraging that um, bundled into conversations around the prominence and anti-siphoning legislation that's currently also being talked about. Um, we've already started to make uh, efforts to use that service as um, an initial way to get back to uh, providing community television services to all Australians, not just uh, Melbournians and Adelaideans. And what are some of the challenges um, you found that um, the community te television has seen in the past uh, 10 years? You know, the, the challenges that any business would go through if you gave them a period of seven or eight years where you said, uh, we're not going to tell you whether you have another six months, 12 months, two years to trade until two weeks before that deadline is set to expire, then we'll give you a, a year, then we'll wait till there's two weeks to go, then we'll give you another six months. If you did that to any business, what that would do to uh, not only uh, the uh, financial position of that business, there's a whole range of folks who have been impacted by this stop-start nature of the last decade, basically. We've managed to survive it only just, and the same can be said for Adelaide, but of course, when this whole started, there was a national footprint for community television and we're now down to two stations and it's a direct result of the manner in which the sector was treated. I, I challenge any business to have gone through what we were put through and come out the other side without some pretty um, bruising side effects. Channel 31 has a, a lot of multicultural programs on the platform. What does this, I guess, news mean for those programs and, and um, I guess, multicultural communities uh, in Australia? Well, it just means that there is the continuance um, and confidence in a platform that's essentially designed to serve those communities. Um, that's why community television, in essence, or a big part of the reason why it exists, is to um, ensure that there is accessible, free uh, access to entertainment and information that is geared not just to commercial interests, but to uh, the local communities. That was Shane Dunlop, General Manager of Channel 31, speaking to The Wire. The Indian diaspora in Australia ranks second place as one of the top cultural and linguistic population in Australia, according to the latest census. As the Indian population begins to age, many parents and grandparents Many parents and grandparents find themselves moving in with their children in Australia. The Wires' Renu Tiwari explains how moving countries at an older age presents its challenges of loneliness when adapting to a new country. Speaking to a 71-year-old retired professor, Dr Prabhob Malhotra, on his accomplishment of completing a 1,300-kilometre walk from Melbourne to Sydney for the second time to raise funds for breast cancer. 
since retirement, uh, some of my friends suggested to me, you need to uh, just put your feet up and relax now. But that wasn't me. Uh, I've not, I wasn't born that way. When you do a walk like this, you meet lots of uh, great people. Just we have to take the first step in the right direction. Have faith in God. Have faith in yourself. Don't have pity on yourself. No, I can't do it. No. Turn around. Yes. Okay, I may not be able to do everything, but whatever you can do. I have been walking for the last 40 odd years. But until two years ago, three years ago, I was walking to stay fit. So the, the focus was on my health. But when I signed up with the McGrath Foundation for this walk last year and this year, this focus shifted to community health. I'm still getting all the benefits of being healthy. That's, that's a bonus. But your focus is shifted. So you need to shift the focus from me to the society. I think that's what the big difference is. And people come from everywhere to help you. A person thinks that the society or the Indian community or the friends or the family should have a pity on me because I am 70 now. They should just, um, you know, bring food to my table and press my legs and feet and all that. No, we need to help ourselves. Even if you can do something, um, playing music or singing bhajans or doing yoga, whatever you can do easily, manageable within your limits of your body, because the basic rule is use it or lose it, whether it's a mental game or the physical exercise. And I think uh, as soon as you signing up for a good cause, um, people come together, people come forward to help you, to talk to you. Don't feel lonely at all because you're not alone. They are about... 8 billion people on the planet. Be part of it. Be active. Right. Just, just get into it and take the first step. We now speak to Dr. Meena Tolith, who's a psychiatrist working with cold communities. Migration acculturation is challenging, regardless of the stage of life that we're in. Uh, when we're younger, it's easier for us to negotiate the sort of obstacles that we're faced with. And as we grow older, we become more rigid, we become more used to certain practices, customs, and way of life. And it's really hard then to negotiate a different landscape. So what t tends to happen, and the commonest issue that has been raised is that of not being proficient in the language. That is very isolating. The other problem that they do face is lack of digital literacy. So they're lonely, they're alone in their homes when children grow up work. So digital lack of digital literacy then puts them in a very difficult position in terms of communicating with the outside world. The other problem is uh, limited social network, very little previous exposure to Western way of life, negotiating social services, health services, so on and so forth. These are people who have contributed for most part of their life. They have been the providers, they've been decision makers, they have their own social network and their life. Uh, there's a there's a certain cultural sanction uh, in the countries that they come from. They've got religious uh, activities, occasions. There's so much connectivity, if you think about it from an Indian context. And when you come here, life is lonely, life is quiet. And their sense of usefulness sort of changes when, you know, the little children or grandchildren that they're looking after have grown up. Then there's a sense of who am I, what is my role, and where to from here. 
So, and it is at that time, I think there's a sense of uh, aging in the wrong place. So those of us who have come into the country, we are all now aging. And something that is going to become a reality, because Australia is a, is a mature population, it's maturing as we speak. I think these are challenges that are going to be faced. So what can we do to change the situation? I think the change sort of starts with thinking about every elderly migrant person as an individual and not as a homogenous sort of uh, population. What is it that they see for themselves here in this new country, in their space? Encouraging them to connect with society, where local communities, local councils have to play a very pivotal role uh, in organizing activities so that every day is not the same old, same old. And there's not that much a sense of being removed from society, being on their own, and and falling into a state of depression and demoralization. I mean, we now go to Anu, who has had a very difficult time in her life uh, in the recent years. She's had four operations for advanced cancer. She's lost family members in COVID, and then finally, at the end, she lost her son. But she still held it together. She talks about what helped her to keep it going and not feeling like she'd lost it all. Life has taken us through a lot of difficult times and challenging times. When we came from India, I had joined family over here. We stayed together, all of us. And um, of course, the family was there to help. But I had a great uh, foundation from Art of Living as well. You know, the strength and the positivity that I have um, held till up till now has come from there. The thing is like, you know, you have to help yourself to get help from others. So the other part was like, you know, I have given a lot to the community, which has helped the community to give back things to me. So that is another thing I feel that like, you know, um, has um, had a made a big impact in my life. When you give something to others, you get back 100 times more. The thing is with Art of Living, uh, the practice that I'm doing is uh, it relieves a lot of uh, stress and tension and everything, not just I know life has challenges for everyone. It's not that like, you know, you don't have challenges in life, but this helps us to deal with the challenges, to cope with the challenges, to deal it with calmly, peacefully, and practically. We now speak to Poonam, who has helped her mother-in-law, who came here in late stage to settle in this country and find a fulfilling life. My effort mainly was for taking her or understanding what the council activities were, what was the possibility for her to keep herself busy while my husband and I would work. We wanted her to feel part of the community, make her own little friends. And we introduced her to the Indian senior citizen. She started going there regularly, then ringing them up sometime, talking to them. I think that effort has to be done by individual. You have to be involved in community activities. That was Punam Mehra speaking to the wise Renu Tuari. Black Saturday bushfire survivors are calling the government to implement safer and renewable energy. 
It's been 15 years since the catastrophic fires in regional Victoria, where 173 people lost their lives and more than 2,000 homes were destroyed. The wise Vanessa Gatika speaks with Serena Joyner, Black Saturday survivor and CEO of the Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action, about the need for greater investment in solar and wind power. Reflecting on the 15th anniversary of the Black Saturday, as a survivor yourself, could you share how the experience shaped your perspective on the urgency of addressing climate change and the role it played in your advocacy for the renewable energy initiatives? Uh, yeah, look, uh, personally, I, I live in the Blue Mountains, which is bushfire affected, and I have my husband is a volunteer firefighter, so I do feel like I have something on the line. My organisation, Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action, has members that have been impacted by Black Saturday, Black Summer and many other fires. And those members that have been deeply impacted, they may have lost their homes or, or they came close to losing them. But what, it, what it really meant for them was as much as you might be able to rebuild and the things that you can do in your community to perhaps make you safer, ultimately no one is safer unless we can stop climate change. And that's why our organisations formed to say, look, you know, as much as we can do in our, in our own homes, we can't ultimately make ourselves safer from the, the terrible impacts of climate change unless we get the government to stop opening new fossil fuel projects and to also, you know, roll out that shift to renewable energy. In the article, you mentioned the desire for everyone to live in a home safe from extreme climate impacts. How do you see the transition to renewable energy contributing to this goal and what specific benefits do you foresee for communities, especially in terms of safety and resilience? Well, the big picture for us is that by rolling out renewable energy across Australia, uh, it's both cheaper, a cheaper form of energy and ultimately it is safer because it mitigates against climate change. So that's the big picture. I do hope and expect that having renewable energy being available to homes all across the country, including in regional and remote areas, as that becomes available, it does make communities and uh, more remote and regional homes safer to have access to uh, resilient energy and clean energy. Um, and that makes a difference to keeping our homes actually climate resilient, to keep cool, to keep comfortable and to be able to um, have a have a safe um, climate resilient home over our head. Given the urgency expressed in the article regarding the impact of climate change on fire seasons and extreme weather events, what specific action do you recommend for individuals, communities, and policy makers to accelerate the transition to renewable energy and address the underlying causes of these challenges? Well, look, there's one little thing that everybody can do today. We have an open letter on our website. The website is bushfiresurvivors.org and they can find a link to our open letter that just simply says, yes, I agree, I support Australia rolling out uh, our renewable energy system to replace the coal and gas system. And it is happening and the government has done, is working hard to roll that out as quickly as possible. We think it's this is a timely point to remind the leaders that that's what we want. We want to see renewable energy rolled out. So that's one thing people can do right now, even if 
you know, it, it's nice if you can put solar on your roof, but a lot of people are not in a position to do that. They might be renting or they may not have the funds to do that. But what they can say, will I, for one, support Australia having a renewable energy future? That was Serena Joyner from Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action speaking to The Wire's Vanessa Gatika. Indigenous communities are being called on to have their say on the formation of an advisory body to hold governments accountable on closing the gap targets. The New South Wales Coalition of Aboriginal Peak Organisations want to create an independent Aboriginal-led body to commit lawmakers to meeting the targets set out in the 2020 Gap Agreement. National Radio Director Frank Bonacoso asked Coalition Senior Engagement Officer Mas Bahnu why First Nations communities need to be empowered. This actually started a long time ago, back in 2005, with the um, uncle Tom Karma. With, uh, he was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Social Justice Commissioner, where he found in his report that um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait people are dying 10 years younger than uh, other Australians. So from 2005, 2008, the Rudd government came into uh, power and created COAG, Council of Australian Governments, to work with. Aboriginal peak organisations to close these uh, health disparities. So that's, uh, that was back in 2008. We're in 2023 now. What we found, we've got 17 socioeconomic targets from health, education, incarceration and, and so forth. And there's only three targets that's been met by New South Wales government. My team, Priority Reform 3 uh, uh, Government Accountability Team, we're in the process of creating this accountability organisation, uh, Aboriginal independent-led. It'll be first in, in Australia, so we understand that ATC had their first accountability organisation uh, by the name of ATC Aboriginal Trust Islander Elected Body. So in New South Wales, we're creating our own accountability mechanism organisation. So, Mass, would this be New South Wales's first account Indigenous accountability organisation when it comes to closing the gap? That is correct. So we're the first one, um, you could say, off the block. Each jurisdiction, they've got their own sort of like accountability mechanism. For example, in South Australia, they've got their own uh, elections coming up with the voice, their own voice department in South Australia, state government. In Queensland, they've got like uh, treaty talks in the process. So they've got their own community consultation in Queensland. And here in New South Wales, we're focused on keeping the New South Wales government accountable in directing those funds or have created this partnership with uh, New South Wales government to um, Aboriginal community-controlled organisations to work with us. Okay, and how will a, um online public survey contribute towards that, you know, the creation of an oversight yeah. body for New South Wales? Definitely. So uh, if on our website, New South Wales Cafe, if listeners can just type that in their browser, It'll come show up our, um, on the website of all the workshops that we're holding in New South Wales. And we also have workshops, online workshops for those who can't attend in person. And then we've got surveys, so the 15-minute survey where we um, email text um, participants that we have their email address that they can do a 15-minute survey. So basically, the 15-minute survey is just to capture their ideas, information on finalising this model before... Um, yeah, by end of um, April. How will the survey, you know, add yes. impetus to calls for greater government accountability? So whoever does the survey online, there'll be like a theme, because 
what we're asking, there's four structures that we're asking our um, assistants to finalise. So those four structures could be an Auditor General, a Closing the Gap Commissioner or Commissioners, or a um, elected body model, or a uh, existing regional, Aboriginal regional alliance model, or like a empowered communities model. So we're asking those uh, four structures, and they it's like a voting system, I guess. But at the end of the day, we'll collect all the information and then we'll just try and see if there's a theme with the online workshop, with the survey, and also in person. So there'll be a theme where our uh, managers, they'll um, draft a report before 30th of June to present to the New South Wales Government. That was Mass Bahnu from New South Wales Coalition of Aboriginal Peak Organisations speaking with National Radio News, Frank Bonacoso. And unfortunately, that is the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nations where the program has been produced and we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.